Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode. On this episode, we have Ian Rabowski. He's with Jean-Luc Colombo Winery in the Rhone Valley of France. He's been working with Jean-Luc for a long time and they've been great friends for a long time as well. Uh, this is a really fun episode for us because we learned a lot of information we didn't know before. Uh, we learned a lot about the Rhone Valley, a lot of the rules and regulations and how things work out there. We were able to try through a lot of different wines with him. Uh, so it gave us a really cool perspective on basically all the different styles that are made out there. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, one of the wines that we do drink on this, the Les Sabales, and I know that's wrong, but you know I can't pronounce anything well, uh, basically means the bees in French. Uh, they donate a dollar of every single bottle to help restore bee colonies around the world. And, you know, that's a really important issue to them as well as to us. So if you get a chance to see any of these Jean-Luc Colombo wines, make sure you try them. They're absolutely fantastic. Uh, and again, we hope you guys enjoy today's episode. Thanks for listening. Take care. We're live now? We're live now. So, but I was trying to think of something. I was looking this up. Ian, are you French? No. I didn't think so. I'm Polish. I was going to say. I was gonna, well, his last actually, name is Rabowski. Yeah, Rabowski is actually. There's, there's skis all through Europe, though. There are. Uh, but S-K-Y usually means uh, Jewish. S-K-I usually means Christian. But Rabowski means uh, fisherman. Okay. And they traced my family to uh, a, a village on the Baltic Sea that where there were a lot of fishermen that became Rabowski at the last name. So do you speak Polish? Dobrze. That's the only word. <laughs> I don't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> I know a little bit here and there. My family's from uh, Prague. From Prague. And but we there's a, there's a lot of Patenkos in my family and there's a there's a lot of crossover with the the Polish community, so Poles, you know, when you think about it, they've been in history for a long time. They've really, I wouldn't say the center of Europe, but you could say the center oh, yeah. of Europe. Yeah. And there's a lot of countries that were Poland at one point that aren't anymore. Right. As it's expanded and waxed That's and waned. Right. And yeah, through war and everything. Yeah, yeah, so Pol Poland and Germany are the easiest things to go through. It's mostly just flat land. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know they make liquors. Does Poland really have much for wine? Not yet. Global warming might change that, though. A lot of bad jokes. A lot of bad jokes, but no, I'm serious. There's a, I was sitting in Valence, which is the Rhone Valley, and I'm, I'm at a hotel, and in the hotel is a magazine sitting at this table, and it's talking about, this was like four or five years ago, and in the magazine was the shift of where varietals are going due to global warming. Five years ago. And they were mentioning Poland as being one of the recipients. Might have been Pinot Noir. It's interesting. I mean, you know, one of the biggest challenges wine will have to face is where and what grapes you plant. You know, it's not like beer. You just find the right water supply and you can, you know, kind of ebb and flow with it. Obviously, your hops will change. But, you know, if you're trying to predict 10 years from now, are these grapes going to work in the spot that we planted right? That whole environment could change. Well, by I, a few degrees. I think it already has. I mean, uh, no offense meant to Napa, but do you see a difference between Napa Appalachians today? I will say I – so I'm 35, so my wine knowledge of yeah. has been, like, as big as it's been, let's say, over the last maybe decade, so, like, 10 years. 
So to me, Napa has relatively been the same, that big, kind of more alcoholic. But now that I have friends who have old Napa wines from the 80s and 90s, they're all 12, 13% alcohol. And it's drastically different styles of wine. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah. So I would say probably 10 years from now, I'd be like, oh, my God, these are different. It might be kind of closer to Paso Robles style wines than it is what Napa is today, just because of how hot it's going to get eventually. Well, but you always saw differences between the valley and then the mountains. Yeah. Right? Now I don't know that that you do, and then you also had north and south with Calistoga, and then going all the way south, and and also over the ridge you'd see a difference. But I don't I don't see that today. I I feel like we're losing something. Actually, this is American culture. Really. So do you think it not just has to do with the weather, or the fact that? You know, a lot of American companies go in and buy these vineyards up, chase points and chase money, that they kind of make it all slowly taste the same, crank out the oak, crank up the alcohol to get more bold flavors. Versus if you just had French style or Italian families or French families that have been there for so long, they just kind of let it be. Well, the grapes have to come to maturity. And to come to maturity, it's going to take 100, 110 days. And what's occurring is the fruit content is overblown in those that period of time for the grapes to mature. Therefore, you have more sugar, more bricks, as we do it in America. You know, the Germans do it uxle. But, you know, in, in California, it's bricks. And then 55% of your bricks number becomes your alcohol, right? Yep. Well, when your bricks is... Uh, 30 degrees or 32 degrees, your your alcohol is 15, you know? I mean, it's it's high. There's no way around it. Yeah, there is no way around it. Which is interesting. So that, that kind of accidentally, by definition, gives Napa Valley its own terroir by just being big, high alcohol, high concentrated wines. So if it can get a little warmer, kind of what Paso Robles is, that might be kind of not, I don't want to say the canary in the coal mine kind of thing, but I think maybe that's just what the newest generations of wine drinkers are like are used to is liking this big, monstrous wine. And I think that is just an American palate thing. It's we love big, overdone, bold, monstrous style drinks. That's why people love their bourbons or big IPAs and burgers the size of this table. They love huge things. Well, you know, that is something to think about with size, but you know, just think about also diabetic wine. Yeah. <laughs> which is when a wine is fermented you know, to its normal state and it still has a great amount of sugar in it, Yeah, it becomes kind of serious from the point of view of having too much sugar. And, and it's also, you know, another thing is it's being fed by water reserves, right, that kind of boost it all up, you know. Someday in the future there may not be any water that goes into into these wines you know you yeah. don't know and I don't, we don't know what's going to happen except for maybe uh raisin burn and you know i mean it's it we're they're saying in 20 years you won't be making wine in napa how about that that'd be crazy yeah that would be crazy and it's our lifetime yeah you know i, I would in, be intrigued to see the massive difference 20 years from now i think america has a better easier fight to adapt to climate change than the rest of the world. And I mean by that, by like they might make some more genetically modified grapes that UC Davis trying to plant. But also when it comes to America, marketing wins and somebody could come along and start planting Syrah and Grenache and Tempranillo, market it as this 
new Napa Valley grape that's the next best thing is this Tempranillo or this Grenache or this Syrah, and then you slowly see the cab disappear and this hot climate grape come in. So I think Napa will stay. The grape will just be something new and have to be marketed different. Yeah, so Syrah. So that's why I'm here, because I'm doing the Rhone, right? Yeah. And I've been in the Rhone. Well, I've spent a lot of time in the Rhone. So real quickly, Ian, you're with John Luke Colombo uh-huh. out of the Rhone Valley. Correct. And they specialize in all Rhone varietals, basically. Rhone varietals and, of course, Provence. And a couple of other things like the Viognier. I don't know if we put that here. But we make a Viognier from Languedoc, which is really spectacular. Yeah, I'm excited to try that later. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, I, I've i known Jean-Luc since 1990. I was running a distributor in New York City. Jean-Luc walked into my office. And I think if you take a look at the picture of Jean-Luc, he and I look alike, <laughs> except I think I'm a little prettier. <laughs> So um, by the way, that's not recorded. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not you can't go back forever. Because <laughs> John Luke and I are old friends, so I, you know, I brought him into uh, national distribution at Palm Bay, and um, and I worked through, you know, fourteen years doing that with other brands too. And then in 2014, I left Palm Bay and went just to solely focus on Colombo and the Rhone. Right, so I've been doing nothing but, and I, to me, the Rhone is fantastic. But I will say this: you know, I've been in the business forty-six years. I was counting that when I was coming here, saying, "How many goddamn years have I been in the business? A long time, forty-six years." You said, "Yeah, it's thirty-five." My, my right? whole life, yeah. I'll, I'll be forty-six in July. There yeah. you go. So I entered the business in nineteen seventy-six. Yeah. You know. As a, as a young kid, I say I was two years old when I did, but of course that's a little bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> um, and I've seen a lot as the business has changed, and in particular, you take it to the Rhone Valley, they used to struggle to get to 11 and a half degrees alcohol. They had to chapelize, meaning added sugar, so you bring the bricks up or the you know sugar level up to get down to 11 degrees. And they it wasn't just one year. It happened a lot, right? So today, natural evolution with global warming, uh, they're making 14-degree wine. Wow. And, it's, and there's no chapelization. They don't need to acidify, although maybe someday in the future they will acidify if it gets even higher um, to keep acidity in the wine. And, you know, they are becoming, what you're going to taste in these cornosses, a wonderful fruit experience with tremendous balance and length and great quality uh, pictures of the varietal, which, you know, Syrah is the only red varietal grown in the Northern Rhone, right? So it is all about violets, blueberries, black fruits, spice. It really is one of the most serious varietals on the planet are you seeing a more of a shift in america's drinking these style wines definitely but still you know of well here i'll give you a story in 20 in 2000 they did a um started a study of ver, all the varietals in the world planted around the world and syrah was 36th in lines 36th biggest or smallest varietal planted 
They did the same study. It's a 50-page report. They did the same study in 2010. And Syrah moved up to 10th place. Now, are they including Shiraz in that with Syrah? I'm just kind of curious with the the numbers because I know okay, that so Shiraz went through a big explosion in the late you know 2010 area or so 20 2009 2008. So I don't know if that stat included what Australia was doing or if that was just straight like Syrah. Well, it's just so we're on the same wavelength here. The TTB American, you know, Tobacco Alcohol Board uh, identifies Syrah as the same grape as Shiraz, okay? So, actually, Jean-Luc had a joke once. He said, I want to create a wine that's 50% Syrah and 50% Shiraz. (laughs) I said, well, that's good. That'll work. If he markets it right, he absolutely would. (laughs) So we're starting to see Australian producers produce Syrah, lower alcohol, more peppery-driven, more Rhone-style, and not so extracted, big. So, And they're labeling it as Syrah to differentiate. Where is it? But Do you know the areas that it's coming uh, from? Australia. I'm not sure not exactly. Sure. I mean, we had a couple that have popped in here recently. The Kunawara and those regions were making Shiraz with a lot of residual sugar. We saw oh, yeah. that with Italians, too, recently. I thought I, maybe it was one label I've seen. Instead of putting you know, Montepulciano or Rosso, I've seen Sangiovese popping up on more labels in certain areas that I imagine they use the name just so the American buyers know what they're getting. Because the American, the vast majority of Americans don't understand the difference of something. Like they see Primitivo, they're like, I don't know what this is. Well, it's Italian's Infidel. Oh, well then why is it Primitivo? So it's, it's I, I will see Americanized labeling on certain wines these days, which makes sense probably for Syrah. Yeah, well, you know, if you look at Colombo's Cornas, they say Syrah on the front label. They right. never had I, that before? I put it on in, I think, uh, maybe um, 2012 when I was running the brand. I wanted people to know that Kornos is 100% Syrah. And, in fact, it is the only place in the Northern Rhone that is mandated by law to be 100% Syrah. So in the Northern Rhone, uh, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, um, some of the ones I'm familiar with, obviously, Cote Roti is... I always assumed was the king of like the Syrah area, but they do that with Viognier, right? Or like a little Viognier is added to it. The regulations read that you, uh, Cotoroti, which is comes from a town called Ampuy. And that's the farthest, most northern part of the Rhone? Yeah. Okay. And and also, a very interesting fact is that Cotoroti used to, Syrah used to not ripen north of Cotoroti north of Ampuy. So if you went into the next area, which is Beaujolais, right, mm-hmm. it's Gamay. You know, right now they're starting to plant because of global warming, a little bit of Syrah, but back then, the most northern appellation was Cote Roti for Syrah. So there could have been at times it didn't even ripen in that area. Correct. It is the, it is the point, Cote Roti is interesting, you, you have to have a minimum 80% Syrah, you could have a maximum of 20% Viognier. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but nobody does that. Yeah. That's the old days. And it has to be grown side by side in the field, field blend. has to be f- picked together, fermented together by law. So Cote Roti today, you probably see 3 to 8% Viognier in the blends, if you see it at all, right? And it makes for the expression of Cote Roti, the traditional 
and people will probably argue with me, but the traditional mm, style of cote roti is pure elegance, where the viognier fermented with the Syrah becomes this ethereal, you know, the stressful point where the Syrah varietal, you know, really digs in deep and creates these very, very fine points that get blended in with Viognier, very floral, more liquid uh, interpretation, which becomes this elegant elixir, you know. So, therefore, Cote Roti is always about its elegance. Okay. And then Cornas is where? Cornas is the southern part of the northern Rhone. Okay. And it is the only appellation that is 100% Syrah. And, by the way, UC Davis found out that um, Cornas is the birthplace of Syrah. They actually, UC Davis is very interesting. They went into France and they identified, you know, they call them the international varietals, right? They're all French, right? Pinot Noir, Chardonnay out of Burgundy, right? You know, um, Syrah and Viognier out of the Rhone. Sauvignon Blanc. I'm not sure if Sauvignon Blanc is the Loire. I think it's more Bordeaux where it was originated from. But all of these varietals are international, and they all are attributed to French development. As, yeah, as that, those particular ones, Sauv Blanc, Syrah, Cab, is it obviously Sauvignon. originated from Cam Franc. Because I'd imagine, isn't the, the cradle of all grapes from the Middle East? Like the grapes, not just necessarily wine grapes, but my understanding was always grapes originated from somewhere in the Middle East and got moved across the land through obviously what would have been Persia into like what is now modern day Israel. And then obviously the Greeks took and ran with it across the countries. French did what they did with it. And now here we are today. (laughs) Well, you know, I think the old rule of thumb was that we believed it came from Georgia and Eastern you know, or Persia, that area. Okay. But, and that's what we used to think about Shiraz or Syrah. Yeah, because Shiraz is a Iranian city or Persian city. Correct. Yeah. So considering that I'm 46 years in the business, we used to think that Syrah originated out of Shiraz. UC Davis just changed the whole play. Yeah, genetic, genetic Gen- identification is going to gen- change everything. They identified the mother, the father, the actual location of its region, and they, they identified Kornos to Tain Lermitage, which is about, I guess, 20 kilometers or 15 kilometers north of Kornos. That is the birthplace of Syrah for the world. Interesting. And from there, it, it emanated out and went all around the world. So today it is, you know, planted everywhere. Washington State, California, uh, Australia, you know, South America, you know, it's all over the place. It blows my mind, and Damon and I have had these conversations where, you know, Cab seems to one, maybe the domination across the world kind of a thing, where right. that's what you see the most, it seems, with the exception of Europe. Everybody planted Cab to make money, but Syrah has always been this amazing grape that can adapt to every environment it's kind of thrown into. Or are we mistaken that it's not this adaptive grape and it can be done everywhere, or is it kind of more specific to areas that it needs to be in, unlike Cab? Wait a minute. I, I would say that Cabernet is the grape that adapts to every area. Yeah. Right? Definitely. It, it is the... It grows like a weed in Tuscany. <laughs> it grows everywhere. Syrah needs heat during the day, and then it needs coolness at night. It needs to cool down. 
So that's why the Rhone Valley is so good for it, because the the heat that is along the river in the Rhone is dramatic in, in July and August. I mean, not July, but August by August time, and then the Mistral comes through and it cools down the area so that the grapes revive. What was that word you just said? Mistral. The Mistral, yeah. Is that that word we saw the other day on that Joseph Phelps bottle? Is that what that, that is? That was, the, that was called the Le Mistral. That was the wine that you were... Yeah. Oh, so so what, 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 what is, is that word? Oh, so Mistral is... You haven't been to France. I have been to France. I have... I At the time I was there, did not understand, mm, appreciate, stuff, okay. care about wine kind of a thing. Right. Okay, so the Mistral is um, wind. Okay. It is the wind. The, the wind whips down from Burgundy down the river and then meets up in Lyon with another current that comes from Geneva. And the two rivers meet, join together, and then go south to form the Rhone River, right? And together, that wind is extremely forceful. If you are caught in the Mistral in Provence, when the Mistral is coming all the way down the river, I wouldn't say that would blow you off the mountain, <laughs> but you will hold on to make sure you don't slip. And if you have a, a scarf or you know something lightly put on, it'll blow off you. <laughs> or choke you. <laughs> or choke you, yeah. And we're doing this. We should be drinking, right? Yeah. We, so we, we were in southern Italy once, and there was a wind like that that was whipping through the uh, Tarassi vineyards in Campania. Mm. And I remember we were on the hill, and we just started leaning forward to see if the wind would hold us up, because the wind was blowing so hot, like fast up that mountain. The le- I mean, the the vines were bent over like this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, excuse me. Uh, you know, someday somebody's gonna hit one of these mics, shatter a glass, and yeah, that'll be it. That'll be the first. And time then it's all happens. recorded. So yeah, yeah. It's interesting because you know if you go into Napa during the time of years when those breezes are whipping through that valley, it is brutal. <laughs> Yeah, which is why the fires are so devastating when they break out because it just moves so fast. Yeah, I mean, I remember once climbing up uh, Mount Blanc in, uh, in it's not Provence, but it's off to the side. Is Mount Blanc in Switzerland or France? I'm thinking, is it Mount Ventoux or Mount Blanc? I'm just a little confused, but it's the tall one that where it's above the tree level. It was, I think it's Mount Ventoux. It was so windy. There you'd get blown off the side of the mountain. <laughs> it was That's interesting. Crazy. So speaking of Provence, this rosé that we're having, Provence? This is our 21 Cape Blue rosé, 67% Syrah, 33% Mavedra. What makes the wine different is that it comes from Marseille. So anything out of Marseille, you know, it's, it, it is Provence, but it's more of a Marseille rosé which is to the right of Marseille is Bandol, which is Mouvedre, and then to the left, great area for Syrah. So that's what these two varietals are. So the, the rosé is much more pronounced, a little rounder, um, vinified bone dry. It's, it's really unique the way it's vinified. It's a 10-hour cold soak on the skins to get this really pale color at 50 degrees, so below fermentation. And then it's a three-week cold fermentation at 65 degrees, no higher. And it makes for, the, it keeps the primary aromatics in. And by the way, this is all Colombo. This is all his thinking, right? So do you have to make the wine in 
the region to call it that region over there. Example, if you if your house and your winery are in Doliani, just south of Barolo, you can't make Barolo there, even though you grow your grapes in Barolo. You can take Napa Valley Cabernet and ferment it in Sonoma and still call it Napa. Does he have to actually still make this in Provence or somewhere else, or can he make everything at the winery in Cornas? I believe he can make it in Cornas. I don't think this is made in Cornas. Okay. But it's where the grapes are grown in France, where the identifier is. To give you an idea, we have a Chateauneuf du Pop um, that is um, grown in Chateauneuf and then transported to Cornas and finished in Cornas. So it's Chateauneuf du Pop, and it says it on the label. But it's not bottled in Chateauneuf. And therefore, it doesn't have the cross of arms on the bottle. Because in Chateauneuf, which is a unique thing, to have the cross of arms on the it glass... It has to be fermented, made, by everything no, in there? No, it has there. to be... Well, it has to be, obviously, fermented. Not fermented, but it has to be grown, produced, and bottled in Chateauneuf du Pape. Mm -hmm. So Columbo's is grown, produced, and bottled in Cornas. So you can't get access to the glass. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. That's is there like one producer that makes that glass or two? Or is it like a limited, like do they have like a, a lockdown on who makes the Chateau Neuf glass? As far as I know. It's like a mafia? It's the, it's <laughs> the what, what is a French mafia? Uh, wait called? a minute. It's two euros a bottle for the glass. Jesus. I mean. What, my, 24 euros a case. That's That's a lot. Yeah. I don't think it's the greatest idea. I would think that they should be giving it away to promote the Appalachian, but no longer is does Chateauneuf need to be, uh, you know, promoted that way because Chateauneuf is the largest selling crew of the northern of the southern Rhone. It's interesting. I do see that with French bottles. Now that I'm thinking about it, we see it with the Peak Pool Blanc. They've got their um, their thing on the bottle. Italy has the what is it the uh, Bessa or Abisa, the, the ABS bottles yeah, for Imbarolos. But was it the Sir Lee also for the um, what? There's another Champagne. French. One. No, there's another French one that you. Well, use. even the oh, Champagne it, has theirs. The the special club they've got their special bottle. Oh, that may be something that, of an organization. Yeah, that is. What's the Sir Lee one? Uh, Milan. Um, oh yeah, there is a Sir Lee from. Is it a Loire? Well, it's the um, Melon Bourgogne. Yeah, but so, the, the the actual wine uh, Muscadet. Muscadet. Yeah. So they'll actually have their own little symbol that just says Sir Lee, and it's like a little swoosh that goes. Yeah. It's on the bottles. On the bottles. Right. And yeah. all the producers there use it. Yeah. That have achieved whatever they're trying to achieve out of it. I wonder if a long time ago somebody made a regulation or a rule that they happen to own and be the only people making a bottle. They were like, well, if we put this special thing on our bottle, we'll be the only people to produce it and buy it, and then they either affected or changed a lot to get that done just for them. Like, I could see somebody in Napa coming along someday being like, well, we make this one special bottle, and if you buy it from us only, you can have some weird Napa symbol on it or something. Just I, get the law changed. I'm just sure so that part money. of it is that, but also there's another thing, that there's only two producers making glass in Europe, period. Oh, really? Yeah. And it, oh. And that's a real issue. Okay, I could. Okay, I, in my mind, I was thinking there were tons of glass producers. No, so, okay. no, so they it's got like, the lockdown. Yeah, on it. it's like right. sunglasses. There's only one producer doing pretty much all sunglasses, and they just put on the little symbol on each single one. 
<laughs> I love how America's bottles are just the thicker, the heavier it is that makes you feel like you're spending way more money, even Correct. though you could have like $5 worth of juice in it, but it's like a $20 bottle. Well, I, th- I think we're moving away from that, even though I can't say that that's the way Napa is, but Europe is definitely moving away from that. There's a lot more consciousness about, you know, what we do to the environment. And these I, glasses are, these b- heavy bottles are tough. Look at the Cornas bottle. Yeah. It's, it's, so it's a, a normal, normal Bordelais bottle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we have one. I don't know if we have it anymore. I had one. I swear, if you pick it up, you could bash an animal coming at you with right. this thing. It weighs what feels like 10 pounds. Yeah. It weighs it's, more empty than most bottles weigh full. Honestly, I grabbed it one time to pour somebody some wine, and it was empty, and I was just like, Jesus. <laughs> so th- this is a broad-shouldered Rhone bottle. And I was just told that we're going away from this because of glass shortage and weight. And we're going to that bottle for everything. Yeah. That is Bordelais. I mean, that that makes sense, too, with how bad shipping is. You don't want to add the extra poundage to ship it. Oh, everything is so messed up yeah. today. Also, these are the ones that mess your wine cooler up. That's, oh, you can put 192 bottles in here, but not with those style. No, not if you have a broad shoulder. Yeah. Have you had any issues getting your wines over to the country over the last year and a half, two years with the pandemic? I know a lot of stuff has sat in ports, and there's been a lot of logistical chain nightmares going on. Well, there's... There's no problem with the East Coast. There is a problem with the West Coast. From what we're hearing, some of the West Coast has taken seven months to get a container. Jesus. Just out of curiosity, what would be the reasoning behind not just dropping it off in New York, New Jersey, and putting it on a train? Cost. Really? It's much more just to ship it on a boat than it is to put it on a train to reach cross-country, I'm guessing? Well, if you put it on a boat and ship it to New York and then put it on a train and ship it across country, it's two costs. Yeah. Versus one cost of that boat dropping going it, through the yeah, Panama Canal. Or whatever. And, right. But the ports are so messed up right now because of COVID and, and everything that it, it's a disaster. I know this conversation is getting a little serious, but we, we do have problems in the United States. Yeah. Oh, it's been bad. We've heard it from everybody. I mean, some of these people... They'll tell me, I try and order something, they're like, we've literally ordered that wine five months ago. It's sitting on a boat right now, and there's no ETA when it's actually going to be here. Yeah, so this is a good example. This rosé was ordered last November by um, our Seattle distributor, and they have not received it yet. <laughs> last That's November. crazy. Yeah. I wonder if people are just going to get to a point where they're just going to gamble and say, okay, we know that's going to be ready in seven months, so let's order it now and hope that it... In seven months, we have a container ready. Things should catch up. I think they are starting to catch up, but they're still really slow. Yeah, because my really understanding from a lot of things coming in was always it's not the the shipping wasn't the problem. It's more of it's just it can't get off the boat onto something and move. And then there's another issue, and we should be all conscious of that. You guys Gas here, prices. <laughs> heat. Oh, yeah. These containers are not refrigerated. Oh, yeah. So what right. happens? Sitting Thermal out the blankets and <laughs> pray for the best. That's what, that's what we used to do. Praying. Hope, that's hope they put the container in the bottom of the ship. Wrap them in thermal blankets, and once you land in America to ship it across the country, we'd use you know reefer trucks. Yeah, but how many reefer trucks are even but, available? You think right now? But when we were shipping containers from Europe, I mean, yeah, we th- thermal blankets. I saw something interesting, and I've seen it now a little more and more on shipping bottles because people are trying to ship more during heat. Um, so I ordered wine from a winery. And they had packaged it in this all cardboard, within a cardboard, within this uh, wrapped ice thing for a case. And you throw it out. It's a huge waste. Like, 
drastically huge ways. Mm. But another winery, I just ordered wine from, they're sending me a case and it's coming in a plastic container that's all kind of like an igloo thing where it stays cold for four days. They guarantee it. That when it shows up to your house, it's still going to be really cold. But then they give you a return label so you can ship it back because they want to keep reusing it. So they're actually eating a little of the cost to get this thing back so they can ship it all times throughout the year. So this one, like, that's kind of cool. It's good for environmental so this is, aspect. Yeah, but this is retail. So this is one case. It's coming straight from a winery. Yeah. yeah right. But yeah, I mean, obviously, shipping containers I, drastically could different. Can you imagine putting a glue around a container? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Giant. No, I don't maybe, think it would work. Maybe that's a business uh, concept. A Giant igloo, igloo. plastic <gasps> container. They can make <laughs> it look like a giant igloo thing. Yeah. You all know the what? wine people would want to use it. Yep. Uh, I was just watching Ghostbusters. Maybe we. There's, hey, Damien, there's our million dollar idea. Or it could be a billion dollar shipping idea make the first ever igloo style <laughs> shipping container but that is a huge challenge though dealing with the temperatures with the wine and you know once it lands here i mean you could land it in new york you still got to get it to arizona yeah you know hey let's, uh, this let's is nightmare let's change subjects here and taste yeah, a yeah, yeah okay so a little bit of blanc and it's called leza bay coterone blanc and leza bay means the bees. So this is our Cote Rhone Blanc from the Southern Rhone called Lezabay. It's made of Claret and Roussan, two indigenous varietals. By the way, all of Colombo's wines are in, use indigenous yeast, right? So nothing is inserted. It, it also, because it's all stainless steel and made in a fairly clean manner, doesn't need to have a lot of sulfur. It's 15 parts per million. So everything is really, really minimal sulfur and just to preserve, right? So taste this, because this I think this is phenomenal. I mean, What's, the aromatics just jump up and slap you in the face. Yeah. I mean, they just draw you right into the glass. The anise. And what is the... the Claret and Roussan. So claret, not claret like Bordeaux, yeah. C-L-A-R-E-T. That's Bordeaux. And that's a blend, right, of any of the varietals out of Bordeaux. This is claret, C-L. It's almost like um, Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> claret. No, it's, so it's C-L-A-I-R-E-T-T-E. Claret. And Roussan. Roussan's the big white varietal out of, out of the Northern Rhone. That's right. I've never heard of that grape varietal before, claret. The smell of this is fantastic. That's the one thing I do love about... Rhone blends is the smell that comes out of it. The aromatics are fantastic. If you preserve them. Yeah. Because the old style Rhone market was so dirty and so they used to ferment in these wood foudres, these old barrels that would be used for 50 years where, you know, you they would have tartaric crystals like the size of my arm. <laughs> it's like a geode in there. <laughs> Correct. But wrapped around it would be Britannomyces and all sorts of bacteria. Britannomyces yeah. is, is wild yeast, right? That smells stinky. Yeah. Beer, beer, pe beer people love to use it. Wine people... Terrifies them. Yeah. Some, yeah. You know, Phelps had a um, Britannomyces outbreak in their cellar, and they redid the cellar. They wiped it out. Nobody knows about this. They didn't talk about it. But if you spoke to anybody that was managing the brand at the time, they would tell you that they went to all sorts of extensive you know, work to get rid of the bread. 
spread is the shortage term for it, right? So the, you Shorten see the barrels out front right there, right by the door? Yeah. Uh, so those came from, um, I bought them to make our fence because I make that barrel fence. And originally I had bought them and I drove up to the winery. Uh, so I make wine for a winery. So I drove up there, put the barrels down. I popped the bung off real quickly on that thing or basically took the saran wrap and immediately that sour, bready smell hit me in the face. I panicked, slammed those things shut, rewrapped them and like ran out of like basically rolled them out and put them outside. I was like, oh, shit. I hope I didn't just infect this because all it takes is the smallest little amount. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so we've I've long since talked to Ron. He's like, yeah, nothing's happened, blah, blah, blah. But I'd realized those barrels came from a brewery that purposefully puts bread into the barrels to make sour beers. And I didn't know it. When I flipped the barrel upside down, right there on the bottom, it said destroy barrel. And I recognized the name immediately of who it was. And I was like, holy shit, this could have been bad if I just left these up here. So they didn't tell you to clean the barrel? Huh? No, because they, they, were, they were being sold as... Fencing. Oh, as, as, as planters <laughs> and okay. fencing. They weren't being so sold as barrels. Yeah, yeah. These, weren't, these weren't meant for, these were strictly, hey, make furniture out of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I knew that. I just didn't realize they were going to be sour infected barrels. But that was a real quick panic attack I just had. I, I, yeah, because if you were to spread bread into a winery, that uh, could end their game life. Over. I'd rather take the flood again that we'd had. You, you know, when we first, when I got in the wine business 20 years ago, I noticed that a lot of the Rhone wines were Brett infected yes. from a lot of producers. And I actually kind of like Brett infected wines. I kind of enjoy that characteristic. Well, okay, so what is Brett? So Brett is this wild yeast, but what does it smell like or taste a, like? A horse's butt. Tastes like a, or it smells like a petting zoo. Makes it smell like shit. A horse's butt? Yeah, horse's butt. <laughs> it's, it, it I'd like to say it's it's mushroomy forest floor <laughs> For me it's, with a lot of dirt. I it's think it's always gr grandma's old perfume and funk in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved it when I'd smell I that on a wine. Would be better. What do you mean? Oh Brett, my, Brett my sucks. My grandma's old perfume smells so distinctive. It's this fake lipsticky, plasticky, <laughs> dead potpourri grossness. Matt would be like, "Whoa, this wine smells like farts." Damien's gonna love it. Yeah, <laughs> and that was. But I noticed nowadays you don't get it as much. No. No. So there must have been a, a drastic change in the culture of making wine in the Rhone region. Bleach. Well, well <laughs> Colombo is one of the reasons. So 120 wineries came through his enology lab that he opened to the trade in 1984. And he's a proponent of saying ferment in stainless steel. You can clean stainless steel, right? There'll be no bread in stainless steel. Yeah. And you've, you jacket them, so you ferment at cold temperatures, colder, so that you preserve primary aromatics like you taste in this white wine, right? So if you're going to use oak, use small Bordelais barrels, 225s, that are clean, right? If they're new, they're clean. Or if they're not, you make sure that they are clean by using the right yeah, amount of steam sulfur. Is, yeah, steam it's, sulfur is fantastic yeah, for and that. It, and it burns them, and then you wash it out, Yeah, right? And it's clean. It's really clean. So Brett can be done away with, right? And maybe a little bit of Brett is something that you find. I always find a little bit of Brett in Crow's Hermitage. Mm -hmm. Always on that Hermitage Hill, there is something about that, not so rustic, but this earth-laden impression that you get from the Syrah that's grown there. And it just always comes across as this more forest floor, 
structure. See, and I, I don't know that smell. You say forest floor, but I'm from Arizona. So and we did this one time. He sat there and said, oh, it smells like forest decay. And I'm just looking at him like, dude, I've, I've never been in a forest in fall in my entire life. So I have no idea what, what you're talking about. You never about. went north and went to Flagstaff or anything? It's not the same. That it, And even that decay is not the same. It's not for. It's not like big, broad so it's leaves. It's pine, and you can get that. But honestly, not during really fall. By the time you get up there for snow, everything's dead. Now, I have once before been out there. As it was more or less starting to go. So I'm like, okay, I can, I can kind of see it. But like my, I've had one time of wine. I could be like, oh, this is kind of dusty. Like if we get a haboob or a sandstorm here in Arizona, there's a very distinct smell in the air. And I've recognized that once or twice in certain style wines. I'm like, ooh, it smells like a sandstorm is about to happen. And then people look at me like I'm crazy because they've never been around one. Did you say haboob? Haboobs. Haboobs. Don't curse at me. What's a a haboob? We're not laughing at boobs. We're saying haboobs. I'll show you you later. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're not There's no video here. We could show them haboobs. Yeah, the haboobies out here are, it's intense, real intense sandstorms. Oh, that's the name of it. So it's Arabic, if I'm not mistaken. They're they're like 10-story, 20-story dust storms. Shit, more than that. They just roll into the valley, and it looks like something out of that movie Independence Day. Or the the mummy, yeah. And it almost looks like the end of the world when it's happening. Uh, everything gets red. You can't see more than a couple of feet in front of your car. And it just happens for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and it goes away. Yeah. And then there's like a dust layer over. And then, of course, it always rains right after, so everything's gross your pool, afterwards. Your pool will have like a couple centimeters of yeah. like mud in the bottom of it. Yeah. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, it's <laughs> it's it's it's, the, it, it's funny. They never said haboob till one year, probably legitimately about nine, ten years ago, mm-hmm. it was always a dust storm. And this one came through, and I had never seen one my entire life of living in Arizona. And I mean, it was a wall. Like, if you ever saw The Mummy or Independence Day, but with sand instead of fire, it was, and you could see it from so far away. And then 30 minutes later, it moved through. It came at like five in the afternoon, so the sun was out, and it was completely pitch black. You couldn't see anything, and every crack and crevasse had sand coming through it. And then 45 minutes, it was gone. But ever since that day, they, they call them haboobs now. And honestly, it's just kind of funny to say. Is it hard to breathe? No. It? it's There's a chewiness to the air. <laughs> but no. I bet okay. if you had asthma, it'd suck. we got to move along here. So we're going to jump into some Syrah now, finally? Or? Yes, we're doing Syrah. Some Cotaron Lesabe. By the way, I didn't say this to you, but Cotaron Lesabe Rouge and Blanc is um, we give 10% of the net proceeds to UC Davis to fight colony collapse disorder, CCD, for what's going on in America. Uh, UC Davis has a program in their entomology department that is doing research on why the bees are dying. I I don't know if you've heard this in depth, but two-thirds of the bees in America, I think there's only two-thirds left, a third have died off. Um, And if the bees die, we will end up dying because we won't be able to eat. You can't you pollinate know? anything. Yeah, right. It's, so it's a disaster. Is Europe facing the same problem with bees as well? Or yes. is it like yes. less dramatic, more so dramatic? What, what is, is talked about is that there are chemicals that we as Americans um, don't seem to... Uh, we don't seem to protect our, our own resources and that we spray, you know, and all the pesticides. And yeah, so it's called there's neonicotinoids that are outlawed in Europe that we have allowed to be used on plants here. And they are building up and they 
they end up affecting the bees. But it's not just the chemicals. There's also a mite that attacks the back of the bee. And then when a worker gets sick and he is in the hive and then he infects other workers and then they start to leave, you know, uh, the whole colony will leave and then the colony will disappear. And that is what's going on across America. So there, there has to be work done to change this. Uh, seriously, I mean, 75% of what you eat is pollinated by bees. So are you donating the proceeds from just this line or from the just, whole? No, just these two because they're both called Leza Bay. Yeah. Um, and Leza Bay um, means the bees. Uh, and it, by the way, this is our second and third largest item. Okay, so it, it does collect some money for um, UC Davis. Anyway, so this is um, Cote d'Arone Leza Bay Rouge. It is a GSM, 60% Grenache, 30 Syrah, 10 Mouvedre. It is, uh, you know, I don't often say this, but 90 points in the wine spectator and in the wine enthusiast. But the key to it is that it is, you know, I'm sorry this is getting very technical, but there's no stems, there's no oak. But he takes 20, 10 to 20% of it, leaves it on the lees for nine months where there's a phenolic breakdown and you get organic compounds that then get blended back into the vats. And th that w that's why you get this incredible richness for a fairly inexpensive wine. I mean, these wines are so expressive, best way to put it. I mean, how many times we taste wines here and you're trying to catch the nose and you're sitting there just like <laughs> trying I to do. get it. And this just jumps up every time. True, I, and I do like that there's more I guess complexity, but there's like certain things I'm getting at. Like this is the weirdest thing to me. So this has a very distinct citrusy orange peely nose. That's it's buried in there. It's not prevalent, but it's so distinctly in there because I remember it as a kid having this one thing that always smelled like that. I, I do like that. It seems to happen more with European wines. It brings a little more memories to me because I can't identify the smell, so I start to like use a memory bank to think of things. Versus you're, if you're I have right, American right. wines, citrusy is a good. Yeah, it, there is a citrusy point that is red, and wine. it's it's subtle. It's not like oh bam, there's orange peel like in like American wines, and I I do like this, but like if I have a Pinot Noir, I could distinctly know it's Russian River because honestly, it smells like flat Coke. It's such a distinct fat in your face smell uh, same thing with like napa wines it's such a distinct red and black fruit that you know it immediately french and italian wines have a lot of nuance yeah but with a big smell it's nuanced but it's potent and what do you sell these wines for do you know uh for I mean, tonight 15 to 18 dollars i mean it's inexpensive yeah and, and honestly from coming from france made in france bottled in france put on a boat sent across america and showing up here for 18 bucks is fantastic yeah there's no question so you said this is gsm grenache rama veggia 60 30 10 so yeah. personally for you yeah not talking about your brand nothing do you prefer grenache rama veggia more which one of those three grapes is your oh i like that way more um I think it's Syrah. Syrah's your favorite one? Yeah. And I, I think, honestly, pour this out, guys. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've been such a proponent of Syrah for years. It's been one of my kind of life's goals is to try and get people drinking more Syrah. We've talked about it here. Yeah. I was, we've talked about making our wine list 100% Syrah, doing four expressions and a rosé of Syrah on my red list. Uh-huh. You know, doing a Shiraz, doing a 
heavy oaked one from America that's like all pine tar, doing a beautiful one from Rhone, doing one and doing literally, you know what? You have one choice to drink here now, Syrah. Yeah, but don't, yeah, but even don't even say it. Just put like, a, you know, obviously this won't be up, but like a Cornas or, you know, then you do Shiraz or, oh man, you put Apostle Robles on on there, it'd be 16%, might as well be a port, but. <laughs> okay, so th this wine is called Colleen Delore. Hillside ah. of Lore. Lore is Jean Luc's daughter. We've carried this. Oh, is this the shelf. one we had? This is the one we had. But when this we is the okay. nineteen. This is not in this marketplace, familiar. by the way. Okay, this is I brought this sample. So it is one hundred percent Syrah from fifteen-year-old vines of Cornas, right? So it is total destemmed, and it is total stainless steel, no oak, fermented free-run juice, just. Fermented cold. It is a red wine that is deep in color, right? You would say this? Yeah. But it's a red wine that goes with fish because it's lacking in tannins. Yeah. That's not, I do enjoy that there's so, well, in this case, zero oak influence on some wines. I know America's heavy handed on oak, which can. It blows my mind sometimes when people be like, oh, I smell these flavors. And all I'm like, as as much time as I spent in a winery, I'm like, oh, it's cinnamon, baking spices, clove, dill. I'm like, it's so oak dominant that I can't get through to the fruit for a while versus this is it's straight like, up. It's like a beautiful woman that just plasters herself with makeup. You know, there's a natural beauty to this. You don't have to plaster no. it with a bunch but, of fake but, stuff. But yeah. really what I'm doing right now is changing your palate. So we've had a lot of different wines and we're going to we're going to move just to Syrah. Right. Love it. And it's violets, blueberries, black fruits, spice, white pepper finish. It's interesting to me that in that entire thing, you did not mention, like, not deli. Well, I'm going to say deli meats, gaminess, whatever, because big giant bombs is what you get out of that, that bacon fat, bacon grease, things it, like it, that. It turns the bacon fat with a like little Shiraz bit of time, that. right? Yeah. Well, do you get any... No, this is this? very mm. fresh. I, it's the first time I think I've had a Syrah in a long time where the tannin wasn't there. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And the thing is, is that if you would chill this to 60 degrees, you know, cellar temperature, and have this with fish, with tuna, with salmon, it'd blow your mind. You'd think it's a white wine. What is the food of Rhone? I understand Provence would probably be for, for, uh, excuse me, fish-driven, but, like, for Rhone, you know, what are people eating most? Is it meats? Is it fish? Is it... I think they eat everything. I mean, it's it's game, a lot of game, um, a lot of beef, you know, Charolais, which is uh, French beef. Um, they eat lamb. I mean, they eat everything. Okay. It's it's an interesting area to. I bet you they wise. use a lot of butter. They use a lot. By the way, they <laughs> is this where like butter came from? You know, yeah. a lot of well, people cook a French food. A lot. Oh, they course, a lot of butter. But but <laughs> what uh, is this, Wisconsin? But I think butter might be more typical in the north, where olive oil would be more typical in the south. Closer to the Mediterranean. Same thing. What's going yeah. on with Italy when you look at Italian food? That, that sounds very. American they would say too. olive oil west of the Rockies, <laughs> butter like crazy in the Midwest. The, the, the classic French cookbook: every recipe starts with a stick of butter. <laughs> that's 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 classic French cooking. When you buy it. a French book, it just comes with a stick <laughs> yeah, of butter. Totally. Okay. <laughs> so I just changed your palate. Now we're gonna go, and can you move that bucket to here? Oh, yeah. We're gonna go. We're gonna taste cornas. See that last sip is crazy. That very last sip I just had, there was the black pepper. I did not get that on my first couple. So, 
Do you know the difference between black pepper and white pepper? Somebody said it to me, and I have no, I didn't know the, white pepper was a thing. The color. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> oh, interesting. You know, black pepper has that very peppery. You know, um, I, I wouldn't say turpentine, but you know that very. It's this smell that is. It's a little more aldehyde, a little yeah. more spicy. Okay. Did you white say from pepper? Aldehyde? Yeah, formaldehyde. Not a, not a formaldehyde. Aldehyde. Like a, like a, a chemical. Yeah, because formaldehyde is. Yeah, no, no. Oh. Yeah, that's what I thought he said too. Yeah. yeah. So, so you around dead bodies a lot? Why? <laughs> Side jobs. He's a coroner. And coroner and corn awesome. <laughs> oh, that could work. Yeah. White pepper is black pepper with the skins removed. Oh, interesting. So it's more subtle. Yeah. We were talking about because I add white pepper for mashed potatoes, not black pepper. It just uh, goes right. better in it. Right? I wondered if it was a different planet. I also learned I that, didn't know that, that, actually. Cr- that pepper explodes in olive oil if it's too hot. I learned that last night. <laughs> I, t- I took <laughs> oh, a bottle. Oh, you're cooking. I, uh, so I made eggplant parmigiana, and uh, for me to basically brown out the eggplant i threw in this olive oil that had red chilies rosemary and black pepper in it but i tried to just pour the olive oil but the rest fell in i was like oh no big deal whatever and that was fucking exploding everywhere and that could have been really 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 bad you're making like pepper popcorn basically oh dude i it was like pop pop and then one went boom and just i was like all right well we're gonna take this out so okay okay, so so same plant same pepper same everything it's just the skin is now off correct okay i didn't know that neither did i so white pepper more subtle you look for white pepper in syrup by the way it's a sommelier sign for syrup so if you're ever in a tasting ever in a tasting and you smell white pepper you know syrup is in that glass now it could be that it's 100 percent syrup it could be that it's a blend of syrup it doesn't have to be just syrup but you know it's in that blend so a sommelier will pick that up and say Syrah. So this is Cornas. This is 30-year-old vines from the hill of Cornas, 100% Syrah by law. It has to be 100% Syrah. 20 vineyard sites, top of the hill of Cornas. He has 20 vineyard sites, or that's it, is just 20 vineyard sites? It's 20 vineyard plots that he has planted, organically produced. It's called Terre Brulee, burnt earth. Oh, it's cool. 20 months in oak, 10% new. The rest is one to five-year-old barrels. How big is Cornos? 154 uh, hectare. Wow, that's really small. So Tiny. Th- 300 acres? No, it's 2.5 2, yeah. times. So it is would it be point? 375. Yeah, that's not big yeah. at all. No. I know ranches in Napa that have 375 acres. Correct, and we know Bordelais have even more. So is that the smallest region of the Rhone Valley? No, I think Hermitage might be smaller. Oh, that's true. That is that extremely steep, small hill. And there is, of course, the one single appellation in the northern Rhone called Chateau Grier. I don't know if you know this. It's in the middle of Condrieu. It's a four-hectare appellation. How did that guy get away with that? Yeah, very rich. I was going to say, original. was he a king? Wait, what did they have? Prince? His or? cousin was who or his it's, uncle? It's Condrieu. It's Viognier. And it is, it was just sold oh, to Chateau feel... Latour. So, you know, uh, there you go. Uh, you know, okay. Whatever. Yeah. Okay, but try this because this Dude, the is. the nose is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So how is this treated? Oak barrels, non-oak barrels? It's uh, 20 months in oak, 10% new. And the rest is one to five-year-old barrels. Now, the old barrels are all. DRC barrels, Domain Romani Conti barrels. I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but this is Lore Colombo coming to 
how she's mm. adding to the mix. She's buying second barrels from DRC, you know? Hey, they got to get rid of them somehow. So That's if, if you don't know DRC, it is the most expensive, the highest quality, you know, I think Pinot Noir in the world. I've been very lucky to stumble into a few bottles of that. Have you ever had in my career? What DRC? Yeah, I've never had a Burgundy that's beyond Premier Cru. I've that's the the number one blind spot for me is Burgundy because mm. I've never known anybody who's had those, ever poured those. I've have a friend who loves Rhone. He's a huge Syrah guy, so I've had some fantastic Rhone wines, and I've learned a lot from that. But I've never had the any great Burgundy. I've had just a lot of village stuff. <coughs> so I'll tell you a funny story. I came into the business. That's really good. In 19, <laughs> yeah, it is good. Yeah. 1970. If you put that as Syrah, I never would have known that was Syrah. Yeah, it's totally destemmed. So there's no, you know, this destemming is an interesting point. Yeah. Because when you have stems in a group of, in a one cluster of grapes, you have green and brown stems. And they, you want the brown stems because that'll be mature, but it'll also be very tannic. The green stems give you herbaceousness. Yeah. So you want bell pepper. You can't pull out the green and leave the brown. No. So Colombo's idea was pull them all out and show the varietal. Keep varietal fruit. So if if another Cornus producer was sitting here, let's say August Clapp, he's he passed away three years ago, but he has the stems in. You couldn't taste his wine now. It would rip your mouth apart (laughs) because the tannins would be so high. You can't drink it for 25 years, but then you get down on your hands and knees and say, God, did I just taste the best thing in the world? But, you know, that's, I mean, that's the wine business, right? Yeah. But for the first 20 years, you'd be saying, like, stuff sucks, you know. But this, this is great out of the bottle. We opened this today, and it's better in a week. And it's also able to age for 20 years. Okay, so... Uh, you guys finished this. It was that good. I mean... Okay, let's pour Rouget. I'm actually really excited about this because this is something that doesn't happen necessarily that often where you get to try all these different expressions. And these are 2018s. Uh, these are all... Okay, they're all... They're sorry. all 2018s. This is Cornas Rouget. Cornas Rouget means beehive. So Colombo, when he first came to me in 1990, he said, Ian, I want you to market Lezebay, the bees. <laughs> I hope he sounds exactly like that. And, <laughs> and finish with the beehive, Ruche. Oh, that's okay. your marketing plan, huh? Okay. <laughs> See, this to me smells more floral. This is 90-year-old vines. Oh, wow. It is very, very unique. It's from the hillside of Cornos. That's a 38-degree angle. You actually fall down the hill. The vines grow 100 feet through 300-million-year-old decomposed granite. So you've now... How long have you been with Jean-Luc Colombo now? 30-plus? Well, I've known him since 1990, but I've been selling his wines only, you know, directly since 2014. So you've clearly had your experiences with this. You, Oh, yeah. For someone who wants to learn about Syrah, they get into it, now they're happy, what would you think is the best time frame for people to start drinking these wines? Because, you know, this is brand new, obviously, being released, but you're like, no, 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 sit 10 years, 15, 20 years. Do you have, like, an ideal this is where it should be? 
Well, each wine is different, okay? And you, you know, and you make up for it by aerating. Buying a ton. <laughs> well, by aerating it. I mean, one thing to do is buy a case. There's six packs for his cornasses. And then you open one bottle per year and see where it evolves. But, you know, the first wine was Terre Brulee, Burnt Earth. And I said, it's 30 years old. This second wine, 90 years old. And I wanted you guys to see a picture of the soil. And I'm sorry we can't share this, but the soil, this was a picture I took in his backyard. It is not hard like your table, but you put your hands in and it breaks up. It's spectacular. 300 million years ago, the northern Rhone, or the central massif of France, southern half of France, was all granite, was all volcanic. And it was spewing out lava. As time went on and it got covered, pressure helped create this granite wall that we call the Rhone Ridge. So the law stipulates that for something to be called Cornas has to have a majority of granite in the subsoil. Oh, wow. They really got into the laws on that one. Yes. So this is... You have to obviously then pay a company to come out and, and take soil samples and submit that to the government? They come out. The government comes out and, t- and identifies the soil. That's interesting, the subsidized way of doing that. This is the AOC laws, you know, so, you know, they're well, very, very inti- intense. Is that changing now? Because is, is the European Union doing well, their whole new, what is it? Is it not DO? What's they're calling it? EU? E- is it? Well, the EU st- started changing, uh, affecting France in 2012. It's a DO instead of AOC. It's DO, DOQ. No, it's it AOP. AOP, that's what, yeah. Yeah. So, which is instead of area appellation. Of prote- area of protected origin. Yeah. The, right. See, that's this has is. a little more tan. It has a lot more tan. Yeah, and that's because it's 22 months of oak, 15% new, and then the balance is one to three-year-old barrels. But it has the tannins, but it's not aggressive. It's not, no. it's not it's, angry. It hits, it hits hard immediately and then slowly fades yeah. away. But, yeah, it's not Nebbiolo or, honestly, it's this one. It's nice trying two different ones, by the way, but this one has much more floral nose. And way more depth of character in the mid palette. Absolutely, it's a single vineyard, two point two hectare, five point four acres. Oh, that's not a lot of barrels at all. <laughs> no, eight thousand bottles in an average year. It is a real unique vineyard, um, and by unique I mean it's the actual name that's on the hillside is called Chaillot. It's next to a lot of famous neighbors, um, but this was Colombo's. This is the first thing he bought, nineteen eighty six. First. Vintage was 1987. This is what put him on a map. Rouché. See, this is where yeah, I would assume more generational Americans will learn, you know, as the climate change, you got to start going more north. So Napa runs away, so you go to North California. But if you look at Idaho, Montana, that is nothing but ridges, mountains, and broken everything along time. So I'd imagine over time, the smart thing would be is like, look how great this wine is. Go up into an Idaho, Montana, and start looking for decomposed granite, and be like, all right, we're going to plant Syrah on this and see what happens. I mean, it's a possibility, but it also is contrived. I mean, this Cornas has been around for two thousand years, growing grapes. Yeah, so we do not have tradition in America. <laughs> Prohibition wiped that out real fast. Yeah, well, that's another story. But I love this wine. I mean, I, this to me, thirty years ageability. It is a Vandegarde. It is extremely special. 
And now this is a vineyard, another vineyard called La Louve. And La Louve, he purchased in 1992. It's even smaller yet. It is 0.8 of a hectare, 2.2 acres. And how many barrels is he getting out of that? Four or five? No, no, no. He gets 4,000 bottles in an average year. Off of, of how many acres? 2.2 acres. Wow. It's not a lot of bottles. No, it's not. No. But and this is made exactly the same way as Rucher, usually the same price, you know, uh, 125 maybe a bottle. Um, but this is 80 years old, 22 months in oak, 15% new. The rest is one to three year old barrels. Um, but it is on a 30 degree angle, so it has two foot of loam on the surface, and because of that, the roots grow up into the loam and go down remember there's no irrigation go down into the granite and what occurs is you get more phenolics so it becomes rounder on the palate try it 100% Syrah Cornas of these three which is your favorite this one this is your one I wouldn't kick that out of my bed it's hard. Rucher and, and La Louve are very different to me. I mean, Rucher is more, um, I don't know, a mineral. This one is rounder, it's, uh, and I like the weight that it brings. But but I got to tell you, Rucher is phenomenal. It depends on what you're eating. See, my, my, mine and this one is the Rucher is my favorite. This, to me, would come across as something more Americans would love way more because it's richer. It's got more flavor, in my opinion. It has a little more depth to it. It has more tannin. Uh, yeah. It stays, that finishes much longer. Yeah. So it's amazing, though, what just a little bit of soil and a little bit of difference yeah. of feet can make. <laughs> so a question that comes up to us a lot, owning a shop, um, people that listen to the shows ask, like, hey, if I was going to go visit them, can I visit them? You can. Is Does Jungle Combo have a tasting room? Is it an appointment-only tasting facility? It, it, you can visit them. It's best to go through myself or, you know, directly with the um, administrative manager. So because they're, what's happened, COVID has really affected their operation. They don't open up during the weekend anymore like they used to because they have less people. You know, they used to be open all the time, tasting room at any time you wanted to do it, you know. So that's changed because of COVID. But you can visit them. You should visit them because it's an education. Without a doubt. I mean, this has been, John and I drink a lot of wine. We've been drinking a lot of wine for years. And this is, we've tasted together, you and I. And this is still eye-opening to me going through this lineup with you. Well, I, you, the, the, the thing is that you're tasting the 2018s. 2018 Cornasses. I mean, the wine press I, I didn't say this to you, but the wine press has endorsed Colombo dramatically. Mm -hmm. I think it was it was it this one that was a top one hundred a couple years ago. Yes, the Terre Brulee was top one hundred in, in a twenty fifteen vintage. So you've you've obviously been to his place, hung out with him, had food with him. Has he ever pulled stuff out of the cellar that you were like, "Holy shit, this is the one." I love this one. Was there a certain year, a certain no. bottle where you were I, like, I mean, "Damn, first of all, whenever, this was." Whenever I'm there, we pull things out of the cellar. Yeah. So I mean he's got a he's a collector and his cellar is just monumental. Right? So he he just says, Ian, go down and pick what you want in my cellar. 
But there's not one bottle you walk down, you're like, damn, this is one of the best ones I've ever had. No, because his cellar is ridiculous. <laughs> it's Fair. like Colombo. It is so disorganized. It's all over the place. You walk in, there's bottles staring at you, falling on your head. It's like, it's, wow, what is this place? It's a cave. Yeah. It's a real cave that he is just stuffed with wine. It's really amazing. And it's not just French. He has everything. Everything. Anything. I mean, you name it. And it doesn't have to be, I mean, it could be Swiss. It could be German. It could be, you know. How much American wine does he have? He has He has a lot of Opus. Really? Opus was the one? Well, he was friends with David Pearson, who was running Opus. Okay. So, he, he you know, he probably changed some cases and stuff, but. It's funny. I poured one bottle of Opus for some group of people, and of all the wines I did in an Apple One, that was the least most liked because it's the most non-American cab you can really get your hands on in Napa Valley. It is. It needs time. Yeah. It needs a lot of time. So, Ian, I heard you used to be a fan of uh, Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up during Jimi Hendrix's time. I saw Jimi Hendrix live in 67 at the Singer Bowl in Queens. But, you know... Uh, so I'm an ex-hippie, you know, so... Um, wait, wait, can you, actually, can you actually be an ex-hippie? Can you actually, like, turn in your hippie card? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> <sh> <laughs> you, you got rid of your patchouli, shaved beard. This is oh me. Oh, my God. Wait, this is me in 1972. I saw that. <laughs> Holy <Yes>. shit. <laughs> what cult were you a part of? <laughs> this is... Com my life is complete now. Oh, my God. Look at this thing, I've dude. Yeah, you definitely could have started your own religion. Yeah. So you know, dig this. I was driving. That's so awesome. I was driving cab in Boston, <laughs> and this is this is a Boston hack. License. I can't believe you still have that. That's <laughs> I love well, it. Well, it's because it was plasticized. It stayed together, you know, so it didn't fade. <laughs> well, we used to pin this on yeah. a shirt. Just imagine me driving. Where would oh you like to God. go today? Yeah, like excuse me, I'm teaching philosophy 101. <laughs> oh, we had a lot of fun in Boston. That was the good days of Boston <laughs> before Boston, you know, kind of. Went into the new world. <laughs> I like it. Suck it, Boston. <laughs> so I had uh, some experience with Jimi Hendrix, although I just listened to him. Okay. You know, but I will tell you one person that I had a night experience with was uh, Richie Havens. Uh, do you know Richie Havens' name? I know the name. Oh, he was a real great guy. I mean, really, and a real spiritual leader, and that was very interesting back then. You know, and everybody was. Thinking about spirituality. Yeah, it's coming flower. back. It's, it's full circle. You think so? I honestly, the amount of spirituality people, the yoga people, the mom jeans are coming back. Bell bottoms are full effect. The beards, as long as you just had long hair, it's that circle's coming back. P people's attitudes are depending on what planet is in retrograde, and yeah, what crystal makes them feel good on their day yeah. and have their mood. <laughs> I'm seeing it, man. Uh huh. Okay. You're going to hear dude, We're, rad, man, bro. I hear bro all the time. Oh, I hear that all the time. Yeah. yeah. We, we play a bunch of old hippie music around here, so that's why I wanted to bring it up. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's funny. I come from this period of time where, you know, you'd ride the subway in New York. I didn't tell you about any of this, but one time I was coming back, I went to Hunter College at night. I dropped out of college in 1970, and I went back in 78 uh, in New York City, and I wanted to finish my degree. Um, and I did it in psychology, and I'm coming back one night from Hunter College. I live, was living in Chelsea at the time, and I'm in a car all alone, and then somebody gets in, sits directly across from me, and I'm staring at him, 
and it's Billy Joel. Oh shit! <laughs> 1978, and and this is Billy Joel when he, you know, was yeah. He always has very very big eyes, but you know today Billy Joel's a little overweight, right? Back then he was, he was a Brooke slim Shields, dude. Yeah, right. He, he was Brooke Shields. Oh, wait, wait, is it Billy Joel? Who? What was no, his wife? It was, um, What's her name? That's more recent, though. Uh, the pretty blonde from Connecticut. What's her name? I don't know. But anyway, you know. And so we, there were times, like I remember flying somewhere. I may have been going to Europe, and I was in a room uh, and, and collecting my thoughts, and all of a sudden there's Bob Dylan. I mean, it was because these people. Oh, I was going to say Christy Brinkley, and sure shit is yeah, Christy Brinkley. Yeah, 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 yeah Uptown Girl. Brinkley. Yeah. Uptown Girl, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I could think of after Brooke Shields was the girl from uh, League of Her Own or Christy Brinkley. And Christy Brinkley is way better looking. <laughs> and, and her daughter is very pretty, too. Yeah. Yeah. Either one of them are fantastic. Yeah. Billy Joel is something else. He comes from near my hometown. Okay. He comes from Hicksville, Long Island. <laughs> is it really called Hicksville, Long Island? Mm-hmm. It's Hicksville, Long Island. I'm from Bethpage, Levittown, Long Island. Yeah, okay. Which was a neighboring town. At U.S. Open's been there. I've, I've Bethpage. Yeah, yeah, Bethpage Black. I've uh, I used to spend a lot of time in um, Jones Beach and in Glen Cove. Uh-huh. I had some friends in Glen Cove. I used to spend a lot of time out there. Yeah, my first car um, accident was in Glen Cove. <laughs> <laughs> See, there, there you go. <laughs> it, it got totaled. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh man! Boy, I remember that night. I'll never forget that one. Yeah. Um, has the wine tasting started? Yeah. I mean, our own personal wine tasting started about an hour and ten minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you guys think of the wines? I mean, the wines are fantastic. I've had them before. I'm actually curious what John has to say about these because he's never, I don't think, had a true Coronas retrospective in his life. No. For me, this was a really eye-opening to what. Syrah can be done as because my most of my experience is California Syrah or Australian Shiraz, which doesn't give you the perspective of something light and easy and honestly varietally different. California Syrah to me is always kind of the same thing. It all tastes universally the same. Same thing with Shiraz. I don't hate it, but it's very distinct to me. This was really cool to have, and I've had a few other ones before, but trying three separate ones from the same sort of kind of area was very different it's amazing that it can taste that different which i'm guessing from those vineyards isn't that far apart no yeah they're all on the same hill yeah and i think it's one thing that's nice is that we'll pour some things for some of our guests and all is that they get to try syrah that they've never in their life had because the nice thing is is a neighborhood like ours and people we know don't get to try cornos they don't get to try you know a cote de rhone that's made from small areas they just know chateauneuf de pop because that's you know the big guy so I, I like this. I've never had a Syrah that wasn't oaked. Um, that's your palate changer. The this was a fan, lore, yeah. yeah, fantastic lineup all in all. Yeah. So, you know, I, I say that uh, Cote Roti is elegance, right? When you want to coin the term, the true, you know, philosophy or history that comes from these appellations, the three big appellations for Syrah in the world today are... Cote Roti, Hermitage, and Cornas. So Cote Roti is elegance. Hermitage is breath across the palate. And Hermitage, by the way, can have 15% white grapes, Roussan and Marsan. Cornas is power of Syrah because it's the only varietal. And it, it is the most forceful expression of Syrah. So it is as true to Syrah as Syrah gets. 
Correct. I mean, I guess Besides being the birthplace. I was going to say, I learned that today, too, because I've heard a lot of different rumors as far as where it came from. But yeah. It's yeah, you can Google it through uh, UC Davis. Because they have every varietal, you know, where, where they believe it came from genetically. Awesome. You know? Dude, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for obviously being here and running us through this really cool lineup of wines. Oh, yeah. my pleasure. I, yeah. I, I'm sorry it wasn't um, more humorous. Oh, you're good. Dude, this, no, man. I, I like these. I like when I, learning something, and obviously the people that listen to us, hopefully they learn something too. I, I get a full enjoyment out of learning something new. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, yeah, ne- yeah next yeah, time yeah. we have you on, we're going to sit around and talk about the hippie days more. And we're going to talk about the VW days. bus you probably stole at some point and went to a show, I'm guessing. Oh, my Lord. I oh, put his head down. <laughs> he might have. He actually might have. <laughs> in 1969, my friend and I bought a VW bus and we drove cross country. To Woodstock? Oh, oh no. Oh, he's already on the East Coast. So if uh, you drove, I he drove. Oh, shit. You went to Cali. I drove to California, then up the coast, and then um, and then we sold the the van. <laughs> That's a funny story. I'll just tell you quickly because you guys probably got to go. But this van was a Volkswagen, one of the original, you know, Volkswagen vans, right? And we lost the starter motor <laughs> outside of Tennessee, and in order to start this thing, we had to stop it on a hill. And then pop the, down pop, and and pop the clutch. Just, it was gone. How do you lose a starter on that? Did it just fall off somewhere? No, the starter no longer worked. VWs. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't have any money, oh, so we man. weren't gonna we weren't gonna pay for it. So we just, just makes me wonder how you got across what? Midland America where oh, there was nothing. We pushed it until oh, it started. It pop the clutch. <laughs> one guy behind, one guy popping the clutch. But anyway, oh, yeah. so uh, we hitchhiked back after that, and we just separated and hitchhiked all around the world, all around America, coming back from Davis. We bought a station wagon in New York and drove it across country following the dead. And if really? you got above 35 miles an hour, the rust holes would whistle. So we named it the Whistle Wagon <laughs> because every time you went above 30, the rust on the side of this station wagon was so big. And it would just start whistling at this high pitched as you were going up the highway. Was this after Jerry Garcia had passed away? No, this was I'm I'm in my I'm in my mid forties. So when did you do this? Ninety three, ninety four, and I think ninety three was ninety five. Ninety five is when Jerry died. Correct. I went to three of the last six shows. Oh my lord, that's historic. In the whistle wagon. In the whistle, in wagon. The whistle wagon. Yeah, it 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 blew up in Texas. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and we we traded it to a tow truck driver for a ride to the next town. <laughs> and that's how we did that one. <laughs> and he took yep. the parts, right? Totally. And probably with we, tires were probably bald. We, what, what? <laughs> oh, we rode in the back of a truck with some deer heads. It was really creepy, but <laughs> we made it to Junction, Texas. Well, that's Texas. Yep. Deer heads. Yeah. He's the first guy that actually stopped for us. Uh, well, yeah, because everybody knows when the guy who stops for you has got deer heads, just yeah. hop on I'm in. in. And take <laughs> your Nothing could go wrong. <laughs> I think we're going to end this with, a, oh, with Ian, the dead heads and the deer heads. I love okay. it. <laughs> Ian, you're awesome. I'm so glad you came on the show to talk Cornas with us. This yeah, meant, really, it meant a lot. Just remember, Cornas, high-quality, great fun. Yeah. And by the way, put it with food. Yes. Ian, man, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. We're going to have fun doing tasting. We'll go outside and do some tasting with uh, the public. And we got some Brazilian barbecue tonight. And we're going to have some fun. Oh, thank you all for listening. Thanks, guys. Appreciate everybody listens. Love you guys. Thanks. Ciao.